You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Help is on the way for Vancouver's troubled Chinatown neighborhood. City Council has approved a more than $2 million project to help revitalize the area. Amadagahi is live tonight in Chinatown. Amad, a lot of people are wondering where that money will come from. And how useful will it actually be in terms of bringing back some of the vibrance that this neighborhood enjoyed in the decades leading up to its current state? So what happened at City Hall today was well received by the business community here where you can still find some optimism in a return to the glory days. In business for half a century, serving Vancouver's historic Chinatown, Joey Wong and his family have seen it all. The glory days were like hustle and bustle. Streets were packed, every storefront was uh, filled. But for years now, he says the area has struggled to keep up with its once vibrant look and feel. It's been over 10 years that it's been like on a steady decline. Um, we're probably, I would say, we're at the bottom. It's just, there's nowhere to go but up. Feeling go. Okay. Across the street, William Liu will also tell you the issues surrounding cleanliness, graffiti, and general disarray at times have deterred customers. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. People come down here and that's always the one thing that they say is the cleanliness. The motion passes unanimously. On Tuesday, the city of Vancouver unveiled its plan to try and turn the clock back with an effort to at least visibly revitalize some of the area. Thank you for not giving up on Chinatown. The city will set aside $2.2 million geared towards neighborhood upkeep. The money coming from either a 0.2% property tax increase or by shuffling current budgets. It's focus on cleaning and sanitation, graffiti removal and community support. I think it's fantastic that that city and the council actually see value in Chinatown and want to help Chinatown. Businesses here saying hard work and advocacy from the Chinatown community has got them this far, but there is much more to do in the future. It's a, it's a nice start. We've been asking for a lot of help for the last couple of years and we fell on deaf ears. All right, Ahmad, we're also getting an update on the promised satellite office, uh, the city council satellite office in Chinatown. Yes, part of this action plan was an update on that promised satellite office by the ABC Vancouver party during the campaign. We're told $110,000 has been set aside for the first six months of operation and the city is finalizing between three separate locations. Still unclear what kind of work will be done at this office, but I'm told just the presence here that shows the city has its feet on the ground will go a long way for people in Chinatown. Let's see if it makes a difference. All right, Ahmad, thank you. We now know the cost to repair the shattered glass on Vancouver's iconic Olympic cauldron. The landmark in Jack Poole Plaza was smashed by two vandals in the early morning of October 1st. A spokesperson from the Vancouver Convention Centre says the cauldron was repaired in mid-November at a cost of $50,000. The centre couldn't provide specifics about its security measures but says it's working with its partners to improve security and provide staff with more training. The cauldron is just such an amazing um, piece of Vancouver's history. It's really unfortunate that uh, the vandalism really resulted in some, you know, costs as well as uh, repairs being required. But we're really happy and pleased that the cauldron was able to be repaired quickly and efficiently. The investigation is ongoing, but still no arrests so far. 
Now a bit of a surprising about face by the ABC Vancouver Civic Party on the controversial Stanley Park bike lane. After campaigning to get rid of it, ABC Park Board Commissioners have decided to look into keeping parts of it. Grace Key tells us why. The Lone Green Party Park Board Commissioner is calling out his ABC counterparts, accusing them of making an about face in removing all the bike lanes at Stanley Park after hearing about safety concerns and a possible $425,000 price tag. ABC recklessly blundered into this motion of removing the entire bike lane. And when they found out the cost of it and uh, and the fact that it uh, was well, there was quite a few safety issues that came up, then um, they decided they changed their minds. And, uh, you know, if they're going to change their minds, I'm going to support them on that. ABC has a strong mandate to return traffic flows to pre-pandemic levels, which is exactly what we're doing, which is uh, exactly the intention of the motion. The motion passes unanimously. Commissioners unanimously passed a motion directing staff to look into repurposing specific areas with things like safety and traffic flow in mind. Sites include Prospect and Brockton Point, Beach Avenue area and the Tea House with its new curb. We think that last night's decision is a very sensible one. There's no point discarding all the work and the rework that's been done on the current lane when there are some aspects of it that are really important for safety. Grassroots organization Love the Lane ideally wants the bike lanes in place until a permanent configuration is ready. We don't know anything about the redesign, but this is a good step to indicate that ABC are genuine about trying to uh, accommodate all road users in the redesign process. The bike lane is coming out. Uh, traffic's returning to pre-pandemic levels. If there are opportunity to improve safety, we're absolutely going to look at that, and we're going to ensure that um, parking is returned, and all this will be done by spring. Staff will be reporting back by February 13th with recommendations. Grace Key, Global News. The University of British Columbia is apologizing for how it responded to concerns about Mary Ellen Terpel LaFond. Until December 18th, Terpel LaFond had been employed at UBC's law school. Last fall, a series of reports by the CBC raised a number of questions about Terpel LaFond's claims, about her academic accomplishments and her claims of Indigenous ancestry. In a statement on the university's website, UBC now says its response to those reports and the issues they raised was insufficient. The university also pledges to review its hiring process for Indigenous scholars. Also today, Vancouver Island University says it has accepted the return of an honorary degree given to Terpel Lafond in 2013. A boost for BC's struggling forestry sector with the creation of a new $90 million fund. It's aimed at kickstarting innovation and creating jobs in rural communities. But as Richard Zussman reports, the announcement comes on the heels of major layoffs, and critics say it won't be enough. With BC's forestry sector grappling with an uncertain future, Premier David Eby and his government branching out with some support to the industry. Our government knows that a strong rural BC is key to a strong British Columbia as a whole. In Prince George Tuesday, the province unveiling a $19 million support fund. It's for rural communities across BC and is not industry specific, although some of the money will be allocated directly to forestry. Our whole province benefits when local workers and their families can build good lives in the rural communities they call home. The money is going to go where it's needed most. No metrics, no specific actions, and we'll probably do very little, if anything, to support workers who've just lost their jobs. 
The opposition quick to point out the money is spread out over three years and is open to all value-added projects for rural, remote and Indigenous communities to encourage innovation. Just last week, 300 workers in Prince George were told their jobs are disappearing as Canfor closes a pulp production mill, with worries more closures could be on the way. Our communities are founded on this uh, industry. Uh, it's definitely not a sunset industry. Do changes need to be made? Absolutely. But the government's had six years to do that and they've done nothing. The biggest challenge still facing the industry? Fibre supply issues with the province encouraging the sector to innovate. We need to reduce uncertainty over some of our forest policies in BC and attract that private investment back to the sector. The new fund could be used for companies to buy new equipment to support new production lines, but will come nowhere near to solving all the problems. We need to connect the dots to ensure that the outcomes are happening on a timely basis and that they're attracting the investment in the technology, skills and products that are going to be capable of providing longer-term sustainability. With the hope the fund will create thousands of jobs and keep one of BC's foundational industries relevant for generations to come. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. LNG is another big job generator in BC, but there are new concerns about a facility in Kitimat. And for more, let's bring in Keith Baldry from Victoria. Keith, what's the status of that project and why are people concerned? Yeah, we're talking about LNG Canada near Kitimat. This is the biggest single private sector investment in British Columbia history. A huge project, but it just announced that it intends to build its second phase or second train uh, powered by natural gas turbines, not electricity. That will increase the emissions associated with its plant and really make it impossible for the NDP government to achieve its uh, emission targets, lowering emission targets currently set uh, in policy. Uh, David Eby asked for, for the first time today, where, how does he square this circle here where you've got increasing emissions attached to a project that has the government support. Here's his reply. My understanding though is that LNG Canada Phase 2 has not yet reached a final investment decision. Uh, so we'll continue to, uh, uh, to work with a proponent to make sure that we're hitting our emissions targets. Those emissions targets are key uh, to our government and a priority of all of ours. So the Premier kicking this down the road a bit, Chris, but the government's in a real pickle here because it has uh, full support for the LNG Canada project. And LNG Canada has gone through the environmental permitting system, so they've got full approval here as well. So at some point, something's got to give here. Either the second phase doesn't get built, even though it's been approved, or the government changes its emission targets. It could very well end up in court. Uh, eventually, electricity will potentially uh, electrify this facility. BC Hydro may be required to build a, a hundreds of kilometers long transmission line, which is going to cost a heck of a lot of money as well. So keep an eye on this one. It's a huge project, but the implications associated with it being uh, fueled by natural gas has enormous implications for the government's emissions targets. No easy fix there. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Keith. Vancouver police are investigating an early morning homicide on the downtown east side. Officers cordoned off an area around the West Hotel just after 7 this morning. Police say they were called to a single room occupancy building near East Hastings and Carroll where they found a man's body. They say the man has not yet been identified nor have they released the cause of his death. They do say there is no risk to the public. Family and friends of a Castlegar family are dealing with an almost unimaginable tragedy. On Monday evening, three members of the same family, mom, dad, and their eight-day-old baby, were killed in a car crash just outside of town. A little girl was the only survivor. 
And as Catherine Urquhart reports, family members reached out to Global as they and their community rallied to support the one child left behind. The Castlegar family had welcomed a new baby named Vince just eight days before. Then, Monday afternoon, 25-year-old Ashley Mullaney, 26-year-old Habib, their two-year-old daughter Meadow, and Vince went shopping. The family never made it home. After being struck by a pickup, all of them died, except for two-year-old Meadow. This is a very tragic event, obviously, uh, with an eight-year-old that's essentially died before their life began. The crash happened on Highway 3A in Thrums, B.C. At the time, Ashley's mother was on a FaceTime call with them. In a public Facebook post, she says she thought the video had frozen. I could see my daughter's hand still. Then I heard my granddaughter cry and ask for her mummy. I could hear people talking and saying she doesn't have a pulse. I can tell you from experience that dealing with any incident where a child has died or is seriously injured is one of the hardest to deal with. What caused the crash remains under investigation, but police say there are indications as to what may have occurred. A preliminary investigation suggests that the passenger car attempted uh, a U-turn into um, oncoming traffic and struck the pickup truck. A GoFundMe has been set up to help extended family who will now care for two-year-old Meadow, the only survivor of this devastating tragedy. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Three men have now been charged one year after police dismantled what they call a drug super lab. Back on January 14th of 2022, police raided the lab on a rural property in Abbotsford. They seized large amounts of crystal meth and marijuana and about $20,000 cash. They also found four kilos of pure fentanyl and enough precursor chemicals to make millions of doses of the deadly drug. The combined pure fentanyl and chemical precursors seized at this location could have amounted to 27 million potentially lethal doses of fentanyl. Police are now asking for the public's help to find 41-year-old Kevin Gonzalez, 34-year-old Jemroy Ibarra, and 36-year-old Duk Fung, who are wanted on a string of drug charges. If you see them, you are asked to call 911 immediately. A reality check on alcohol consumption. If you drink, chances are you've been drinking too much, according to the science. New research shows the maximum number of drinks before the risk of cancer kicks in. How it could change labeling requirements on bottles next on the News Hour. This is Galliano Island, Salt Spring. Sunken treasure off the coast of BC, but these underwater archaeologists aren't looking for gold. That's coming up on the News Hour. Also later in sports, opportunity knocks for Nathan Rourke. What the former Lions QB says about living the NFL dream. First, though, just in time for dry January, some new guidelines from the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction on the amount of alcohol we can safely drink. And it's probably a lot less than you think. Aaron MacArthur has the details and why the Centre has dramatically cut back on its previous limits. Hard to imagine a social setting without booze. Fueled by the pandemic, regulations over where and when people can drink have been relaxed. Over the last three years, alcohol use has gone up by 5% in Canada. While access is increasing, 
Science is suggesting people reduce their intake. Would you like another one? <laughs> a review of 6,000 studies has prompted the Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse to recommend people slash the number of drinks they consume. In 2011, low-risk drinking was 10 per week for women, 15 for men. Under the new guidelines, more than seven drinks a week for anyone is considered high risk. Three to six per week, a moderate risk. And anything less than two per week is considered low risk. We were also very shocked about how, um, how much different and how far we've come in the science um, since 2011. Studies have shown a definitive link between alcohol use and seven types of cancer. The CCSA is urging governments to label alcohol more clearly, warning consumers of the associated health risks. Like tobacco, it's important to know the health risks. And as we as a society become more, more fluent in those health risks of, of alcohol, I think we'll probably drink less. Industry pushback halted a pilot program in government liquor stores in Yukon that saw large warning labels placed on bottles. BC's wine industry says it supports changes in labeling, but with more of a focus on information. A 12 or 10% alcohol bottle wine is going to have to obviously a lesser amount of alcohol than a 15% alcohol. So uh, putting that on the label and understanding what a standard drink is uh, makes total sense to us. At this point, these are still just recommendations. Health Canada, which partially funded this research, has indicated it will review the information. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Coming up, car buying gets better. After a couple of years of insane used vehicle values, what's steering the market to more normal prices? Plus, these records can no longer be held in vaults. The National Gathering of First Nations taking ownership of the past. Still seeing some delays for westbound traffic on Highway 1 through Vancouver towards the Cassiar Tunnel. Finally cleared a crash before First Avenue and traffic is easing off from Willingdon in Burnaby. When renewing your ICBC Auto Plan insurance online, select your nearest Sussex Insurance when prompted. For all online broker benefits, peace of mind, and best rates, select Sussex Insurance today. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Canada's inflation rate slowed to 6.3% annually last month. Statistics Canada says part of the reason is lower prices at the gas pumps. They fell just over 13% in December. Prices for goods also slowed, with growth down to 4.7%. While grocery store prices slowed to 11%, down 0.4% from November. For BC in particular, inflation rates dipped down to 6.6% compared to 7.2% the month before. Well, the rising cost of living is forcing many to reevaluate their finances. A single mom from North Vancouver says she, like many people, has had to stop saving for retirement and instead just try to get by day to day. Kylie Stanton has her story. Grocery shopping has always been a bit of a chore, but for Vanessa Malloy, it's now become a game. I try and buy fruit that doesn't go bad really fast. One she just can't seem to win. I go in and I spend $100 on it. I look at it and I go, you know, 18 months ago, this I would have gotten double this for $100. Malloy, a working single parent to two growing boys, is not alone. 
thousands of yeah. British Columbians are struggling to make ends meet in Metro Vancouver. It used to be I'd have a little bit left for some fun extras, whereas now whatever would have been left isn't and is used for the essentials. People are skipping meals, buying less food, using credit cards without knowing when they can pay their balance back. That's the kind of thing we're seeing right now. A new poll out of Research Co. confirms these trends, with almost half of British Columbians saying it's currently difficult to pay for the necessities. Usually it's around 20, maybe 30 percent. You know, you had a bad month, somebody hasn't paid you. There's a situation at work that is making things more complicated. But it's now half of us who are saying this isn't as easy as it used to be. That's resulted in a record number of British Columbians seeking help. Between December of 2021 and 2022, there was a 31% increase in the number of people accessing food banks in BC, with a 23% increase in the frequency of visits. The number of new clients accessing services is up 62% compared to this time last year. Another very concerning shift is the number of people who are working full-time, that's individuals, or parents who both have full-time jobs, but they still need to turn to food banks for that extra support. What we saw was greater need than we've ever seen. Malloy says while she's considered the option, her cupboards are still relatively stocked. I'm not quite there yet. But trying to keep it that way isn't easy. A balance of creativity and compromise. And of course, the hope things will one day turn around. You just want to put your head in the sand and not think about it, but you know that's not the reality. You can't ignore these things. It definitely weighs on me. Kelly Stanton, Global News. Well, there is some good news for consumers in the market for a used vehicle. Prices for used cars and trucks are expected to drop slightly this year. With more on what's driving the market and what you can expect in the coming months, let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Andrea. And thanks, Sophie. Higher interest rates, high fuel costs, and an increasing supply of new vehicles are influencing the used market right now. While pre-owned vehicles are expected to drop in price this year, some industry experts are suggesting holding off on your purchase until later this year. Looking for a used vehicle? There may be some good news on the horizon. Unlike the last couple of years, which saw the cost of used vehicles soar due to a lack of new car inventory, this year could see used car prices drop to more normal levels. Canadian Black Book estimating used vehicles could depreciate about 2% per month. It's usually about 10 to 12% overall that we see vehicles degrade in value over a typical year. That's a typical year. So we're expecting around that now that we're getting back to depreciating values instead of values appreciating in the used market. Driving the trend, rising interest rates and slowing consumer demand and confidence. We hear a lot on the mortgage side that it's increased, but it's not uncommon for financing rates to be, you know, five or six percent when they used to be zero or one or one and a half 24 months ago. Which means stocks of vehicles in general should start to replenish as prospective buyers take a closer look at their bottom line. So the new cars we've been waiting for, people have been putting orders in for a year, year and a half, two years. Those cars are going to start coming in now, but at much higher interest rates. So the people that were waiting for those cars might not be able to afford them any longer. In addition, high fuel costs will likely continue to be an influencing factor with used pickup trucks and full-size SUVs in less demand. With high gas prices and the cost of borrowing increasing, those expensive cars to own and run are now being uh, less demanded in the marketplace. Compare that to used compact SUVs and smaller cars, which
which industry analysts say are retaining their value and not dropping in price as fast as larger vehicles. As to when it might be the best time to buy a used vehicle, experts say take your time and wait. The cars that dealers have on their lots now that are used, they would have bought them uh, when we had much higher used car prices in 2022. Now it's 2023. I think the prices will be sticky for a while. And then when they replenish those cars with the cheaper cars that are being sold at auction now, the prices will start to come down. Now, in terms of new vehicles, while supply is expected to improve, experts say ongoing supply chain issues will continue to be a factor this year and could make it difficult to get the vehicle of your choice right away. But even as inventory improves, some new car prices will remain high due to the increasing cost of raw materials, which inevitably gets passed on to the consumer. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks for that, Anne. Coming up, an arrest in a chilling abduction attempt caught on camera. The man who tried to kidnap a barista and the clue that helped catch him. Plus, it's this secret that we don't really talk about publicly. International students struck down by toxic drugs. The deadly impact on the South Asian community here and beyond coming up. Steady traffic both ways tonight at the Patello Bridge with just a bit of volume southbound on McBride through the Queen's Park stretch. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $60 million plus an estimated six max millions. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A chilling incident caught on camera this morning as a man in Washington state attempted to kidnap a barista trying to pull the worker right through a drive through window. The barista was trying to hand the man's change to him when he suddenly and violently grabbed her arm and tried to pull her through the window. The suspect also attempted to loop a zip tie device around the girl's head. He's since been identified and arrested thanks in part to a distinctive forearm tattoo. Delegates to a national convention of residential school survivors in Vancouver are becoming intimately familiar with the term data sovereignty. And as Julie Nolan reports, at stake is who controls the documents generated during a dark chapter in Canada's history. A time for healing, but also a time to ask for more ownership of the past. This national conference is dealing with a new element of the search for missing Indigenous children and unmarked graves at Canada's residential schools. These records can no longer be held in vaults and held by colonial institutions who control who can see them and access them. Groups are asking for data sovereignty, ownership of records that can provide a clearer picture of what really happened. They want the documents from the government and the Catholic Church, records that still have not been handed over. I thank the survivors for their continued efforts to educate the world about the colonial genocide that happened here in Canada. Without your voices, there are those that would like to pretend nothing happened here. Residential school survivors are sharing their stories. We're simply children. We did nothing wrong, we got taken away. Hoping to ignite positive change for future generations. It's all coming out. We are, I think we all know what we have to do. 
The third time for this conference, the gatherings are being held by the Office of the Independent Special Interlocutor for Missing Children and Unmarked Graves. Phyllis Webstad, the founder of Orange Shirt Day, whose new orange shirt was seized on her first day at a residential school at Williams Lake, says accurate records are key to unlocking the past. I get emotional just thinking about it and all the work that's yet to come with the repatriating of of the children. That work concludes a federal legal framework over the next two years by the special interlocutor defining the treatment and protection of burial sites across the country. Julie Nolan, Global News. A Surrey Gurdwara says more than a dozen international students have died as a result of BC's poison drug supply over the last two years alone and the numbers are climbing. As Travis Prasad reports, the president is speaking out, hoping to stop the stigma and prevent further tragedies. But this month is in, in a, in a two-week poor deaths. You know, that's why I'm, I'm scared. In the past two years, Narinder Singh Walia says his Surrey Gurdwara has spent $200,000 on international students' funerals and sending their bodies back to India. Their parents phone us from India, you know, please help us. We want to see our son, even even it's a dead body. In cases where deceased international students don't have relatives in B.C., the temple may get power of attorney, giving them access to coroner's reports that show a troubling trend. Almost 80 percent, 80 percent death cause of drug overdose. Walia says overdose deaths are on the rise in the community, but whether international students from certain countries are being disproportionately impacted by the toxic drug supply is unclear. If you have a data, you can aware the pupils, you can aware the students. In a statement, the BC Coroner Service says it does not collect race-based data at this time, as there is currently no administrative standard in BC for collection of this type of information, other than for indigeneity. It's heartbreaking, especially recognizing how young some of these folks are. On Thursday, a panel discussion in Surrey will address the social struggles of Punjabi international students, including the stigma around drug use that promotes a culture of silence. It comes from families being scared to report what's actually happening and students feeling ashamed and taking on that, you know, that guilt upon themselves, which then causes a lack of reporting. Starting next month, Kwantlen Polytechnic University's Student Association plans to hold seminars for international students, letting them know they're not alone. They come here, they feel loneliness and they have the stress of studies and that all comes up to mental health. Meanwhile, Walia is urging the government to release comprehensive overdose data that could help inform a culturally specific response. If people knows, then somebody can save. Travis Prasad, Global News. Up ahead, the search for sunken ships. Every one of them that we found was a discovery. The underwater treasure hunt helping solve some West Coast mysteries later. And a very close call in Karameos for people who live in the path of a rock slide. We're getting a much better understanding of the damage caused by a rock slide Monday afternoon on the west side of Karameos. A pair of boulders, each almost as large as a car, tore a path of destruction in the Eagle RV park. One tore a large gash in a storage tent and landed in an empty lot. The other smashed a picnic table before ripping into the side of an RV. Fortunately, no one was hurt. The one that launched into my neighbor's trailer, I seen that one coming right for me. I grabbed 
grab these two and jump for the bed because it was on the other side of the trailer and just hope for the best. We first said that we'd be back the next day, so we only grabbed enough for a night. And then uh, we found out it could be three to 30 days without a roof over our head. And that's all we have down here. It's our home. Crews are doing a geotechnical assessment of the area, but it's not clear when residents will be allowed to go back home. All right, no doubt heavy rain in that area and in many other areas can't be helping. Let's check in with Christy now and get a look at the forecast for the rest of the week here. Yeah, we've got a pretty major system that's now pushing in. We're expecting wind and rain through the overnight period, impacting all of the coast. Uh, North Coast regions could see 40 to 60 millimeters of rain. And for our region, here's a look at that distribution. So we're talking about 20 to 30 millimeters of rain, far less in areas like Victoria. Nice little rain shadow effect for you. We are expecting windy conditions as well as this front moves across the region. So through the Strait of Georgia, we could see gusts tonight up to 80 kilometers an hour. No wind warnings in effect. And from Metro Vancouver, likely 50 kilometer an hour gusts. But this is at tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. You can see breaks across Vancouver Island already. It shifts out. And then for Metro Vancouver, we'll likely see the rainfall through the morning hours. It's not going to be until maybe the late afternoon or at least evening hours across our region. But the showers will continue in through the interior. So for those of you in the interior, you'll likely see flurries through the overnight period and in the morning, but then warming up to highs ranging from two to four degrees. So you'll you'll see a transition to showers in the afternoon. For our region, yes. So breaks of blue sky across Vancouver Island, likely through the afternoon hours for our region. It will be sort of late afternoon towards the evening hours, hoping for it to be earlier, but uh, at the very least sort of late afternoon, early evening hours. Certainly rainfall in the morning, but this is what we're looking forward to. Yes, temperatures won't be as warm as what we saw on Saturday, but six degrees is seasonal for this time of year, so we'll take it for having a little bit of sunshine in the mix there. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Elk Mountain and this is roughly just below about 1400 meters incredible to see no snow at all looking out over the Chilliwack area and that's uh, a result of all the rain that we've seen lately and this photo I think was taken on Saturday okay back to you Sue cool shot thanks Christy I would like a squire cam to like <laughs> just a little in a little kind of like the little box isn't in the corner there just follow him <laughs> On his journey from the sports <laughs> office as he sprints down the hallway. Well, yeah. every night. And I was, yes, every yeah. night. And I was talking a lot there just to give him a chance to catch his breath. I appreciate that. But actually, you know what? I'm, I'm not too bad right now. Okay. I'm but breathing you normally. You did? For the most part. Roll in. Well, he's had, he's had tons of practice. It's been years <laughs> I know that he's been tons. running yes. down to the studio like this. Yes. If there was ever an Olympic race, of about, I don't know, 75 meters where you have to run down the stairs and through a heavy door. And put a microphone on. I like my chances. Yeah. Yeah. I like my chances. My money's on you. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about Nathan Rourke. Of course, he is now a Jacksonville Jaguar. But he got there because of what he did with the BC Lions last season. I think, I think the 22 season was, was super special. I think that there was a lot of good memories. And think about it this way, too. He impressed the NFL, a lot of NFL teams, despite the fact he missed half of last season with an injury. Yeah, happy to see him do well. Also tonight, underwater adventure and the group searching for BC's long-forgotten sunken ships. Someday we might be watching Monday Night Football and say, hey, I remember when mm. Nathan played in 
BC. Just like when Cameron Wake left the BC Lions to go down and play for the Miami Dolphins. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Rourke has gone from being a lion to a jaguar. He is staying in the cat family, but we know he's going to change leagues. Rourke is now a member of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and they are an up-and-coming team in the NFL. They're still in the playoffs. And he'll be looking to become the backup quarterback for Jag starter Trevor Lawrence. Looks to his right, now over to his left. Has some time. Can't find anybody. Now he's going to look for a deep shot down the field. Nathan Rourke made his mark on the CFL with the BC Lions. Now his next big shot is trying to land a full-time NFL job with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Rourke aiming to become Trevor Lawrence's backup. You know, Jacksonville was one of the first teams that wanted to, to work me out. And, and when I got there, you kind of understood that they were you know, pretty high on you and, and obviously you got some people in the building that I know and um, but ultimately it came down to the um, opportunity to, to be in, to, to compete to be the number two and and to be one play away and um, you know that was big for us and then um, and then obviously the the opportunity to work with coach Peterson and, and the rest of his staff is just exciting as well so uh, all those things played into it ones are up here we go Peterson is a well-respected Super Bowl winning coach. He's also very good at developing young quarterbacks. Right now, the Jags have two active QBs, Lawrence and his current backup, C.J. Bethard. The 29-year-old has spent time with the 49ers and Jags. This season, he threw 11 passes in four games total. Yet Rourke is more than happy to compete for that job, and not just because the starting pay is $750,000 U.S. I think that you know, being on an NFL team and, and getting NFL film, whether it's preseason or regular season, um, is really important to being able to solidify yourself as an NFL starter. Um, I don't think it's happening if you're playing another year in the CFL. I just don't. And um, I think that um, I think that the goal right now is to be in a position where I'm a play away from playing. Um, you never know what happens in the NFL, not to sound morbid, but things happen in, in professional football. And that was my goal in 21 was to just be a play away um, and prepare like I'm going to be a starter. And, and that's not going to change in Jacksonville. I know that uh, Nathan's a good quarterback. I know that Nathan's going to bring, uh, you know, professionalism to his, that organization. It's the National Football League. I mean, they, they look for good players. And so uh, they've, they've got, certainly got one on it with Nathan. My job is to, is to create a job for myself down there. And, you know, you never know what happens. You can play well in the preseason, another team could like you, and you go from there. But um, I think going down there and being a part of that process is the best way to uh, solidify a job in the future. Yeah, things can happen fast. Think about San Francisco. They're down to their third-string quarterback, Brock Purdy, who never would have guessed he'd be a starter in the playoffs. Uh, because Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos had an epic fail this season, Seattle will have the fifth overall pick in the NFL draft as well as the 20th, which is theirs. They got Denver's pick in the Wilson trade, so that's why they're also picking fifth. The uh, team of Pete Carroll and John Schneider, the two guys beside me, are in a great spot to get a highly touted prospect or trade one of those first-round picks for more draft picks and perhaps players as well. John, this is this is a kind of a dream opportunity here, you know, and he's pumped about it. And uh, we've had enough experience together and with our guys and our system that we're wide open to what the options could be, you know, and, and whether it's, you know, the players at the top or whether it's opportunities to move or whatever it is, we've done all of it. And, and we'll never turn down the competitive opportunity, as you know. And so we'll be in on everything. So, If you want the Canucks to get a better chance at getting Connor Bedard, you want all the teams below the Canucks in the overall standings to win. Montreal's one of them, and tonight they won. So that's good news if you want to get in the Bedard sweepstakes, and I... Certainly think the Canucks 
would do well to get a high lottery chance at Connor Bedard. Anyway, Mike Hoffman scoring there, Evgeny Dadenhoff scoring there, and Montreal beats Winnipeg by the score of 4-1. to So they actually jump ahead of the Canucks, who are now sixth first in the NHL. Leila Fernandez, Alizé Cornet at the uh, Aussie Open today. Fernandez had a slow start, was down two love, then she got it going. She's never moved on to the second round, down under. But she did today. Won the first set 7-5. And this is match point. So Fernandez on to round number two. And we are hearing there will be a celebration of life for Gino Ojek February 4th at Musqueam. It will be invitation only, but we're also hearing there are plans to live stream the event. That would be great so the public could be part of it as well. There will also be a celebration of life in his hometown of Manawaki, Quebec. And you can expect the Canucks to do a special tribute before their game tomorrow against Tampa Bay. All right, thanks very much, Squire. Up next, a deep dive into BC's maritime history. Stay with us. Jordan Armstrong is here to preview what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. Chris, a vigil is underway in Surrey to remember Sherry Ann Ramkasoon. She was the woman friends say was on her way to work in an Uber Sunday when she was killed in a two-vehicle crash near the Portman Bridge. RCMP believe both speed and alcohol were factors. Plus, a bizarre story out of North Vancouver where a woman has been arrested, accused of defrauding her employer of more than $80,000. We'll tell you how it happened tonight on Global News at 11. Chris? Look forward to that one. Thanks very much, Jordan. BC Organization is discovering and documenting many of BC's historical shipwrecks. And we're all going to get a chance to see their work at next month's boat show when they present the history under your hull. Jay Durant has more in This is BC. You can see, the, see the, sort of the outline of the ship. That's just the way the debris has fallen. Underwater investigations uncovering some long-lost history. That's the motor and the engine. Most people don't have an idea what's below their keel. Keith Bosson and the rest of the Underwater Archaeological Society of BC are on a mission searching for shipwrecks. Every one of them that we found was a discovery. You know, the, the ships are all known. They're, they're known they existed, but they often don't know where they ended up. To date, they've made well over 100 discoveries. Little clues on the possible location of these vessels coming from newspaper articles, insurance claims, salvage records, and sometimes just some random tips. Somebody sends us an email and say, I noticed this on the beach because something's washed up on the beach, or I was out fishing and I snagged this and pulled it up. We're looking at a concentration of wrecks in the southern Gulf Islands. The Robert Kerr has been decaying for more than a century at the bottom of Stewart Channel. How did it meet its fate? It was towed over the reef by a tug. All that's left of the once majestic Clipper Panther can be found near Wallace Island. And this is Panther Point and the Panther is, is, is sitting in shallow water right on the point itself. And after searching for decades, the Admiral Knight, lost to a boiler room fire in 1919, was discovered just last year off Galliano Island. There was theories of where it went. Some people thought it went towards the river and Sandhead. Some people thought it floated down into U.S. waters. A mystery solved. Now we know where it is. 
Careful examination takes place at each site. Some of the more historically significant ones, we're looking for what's there, what artifacts are there, um, you know, are there things that are endangered that should be recovered. By now, most of the easy ones in shallow waters have been found, but there are plenty more much deeper down that will require time and resources to locate, which means the thrill of the search continues. We've still got some we want to find, uh, some you may never find because there may be nothing left to find. Jay Durant, Global News. The history under your hull coming up at the Boat Show. Very cool. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell and you want to share it with all of us, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. All right, Christy, looking forward to a little bit of sunshine later this week. Absolutely. So we just have to get through tonight. We certainly will see rainfall tonight through the morning hours tomorrow. Gusty near the water, 50 kilometer an hour gust potentially. And then it's sort of through the afternoon hours that we'll start to see a clearing. So I'm hoping by dinner time you'll see that sunshine at the very least. And that will last on and off throughout Thursday and Friday. Thursday and Friday, we still will have some, some cloud cover in the mix, but at least dry and a bit of sunshine in the mix with highs of about six degrees before the rain moves back in on Saturday. So... Not bad to have some breaks. Glimmer of hope on Sunday, though. I'm going to hold on to that one. Thanks very much, Christy, and, and thanks to everybody for watching. Have a great night. Good night, all.